Good morning. It's wonderful to be worshiping with you all here in church. My name is Pastor John. I'm the associate pastor here at East Shore. And today we're talking about victory, victory. And particularly we're talking about the end of a war because the end of a war is a cause for celebration. When the fighting finally stops, the enemy is defeated, it is an appropriate time to stop, to remember what has happened and to celebrate the victory. Many of us might be familiar with images that celebrate the end of conflicts in our nation's past. This is one from World War II. People flooded the streets to celebrate the end of a war. Well, today we're going to talk about the end of the war in the book of Joshua. And our passage today is going to have kind of a celebratory tone, the same thing like a victory parade. However, there's one key difference between what we're going to read and a victory parade we'd see at like the end of a war. Because after most wars, the country that wins celebrates and says, we did it, we won. After this war, Joshua and the Israelites knew that they could only say, God did it, and he won. They knew that God gave them the victory in the last battle because he is sovereign, he is in control, and he defeats all other kings. So if you're not there already... I'd ask you to please turn your Bible to the book of Joshua, chapter 11 and 12. You should find that on pages 122 and 123 if you want to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you. Now, don't worry, we're just going to read chapter 11 today, not chapter 12 as well, just chapter 11. So once you're there, I'd ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I will read our passage for today going to read chapter 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Joshua 11, starting in verse 1. When Jabin, who was king of Hatsor, heard of this, heard that the Israelites had won all these victories, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimram, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, that's Lake Galilee, and in the lowland, And in Naphoth door to the west, he sent to the Canaanites in the east and the west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites in the hill country, Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore. They came with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces they came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Verse 6, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them, slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephoth, Maine, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time. He captured Hatsor, struck its king with the sword. For Hatsor formerly was head of all those kingdoms. They struck with the sword all who were in it. They devoted it to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hatsor with fire. And all the cities of those kings, 
And all their kings Joshua captured. He struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hatzor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and their livestock, the people of Israel took for plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword till they destroyed them. They did not leave alive any who breathed. This was just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 16, and so Joshua took all that land the hill country and all the Negeb and the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel and its lowland. From Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, that was in the south, as far as Baal Gad in the land of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon, that's in the north. He captured all their kings. He struck them. He put them to death. And Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Verse 24, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time, he cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word where we are able to see your victory, God, your sweet victory. So I pray that you will be the focus of our study this morning. May we see more of you. As John 3.30 says, may you increase, may we decrease as we see more and more of you. Lord, help us to trust in your victory, trust and not doubt. Remind us that you are in control and lead us to have faith in the true King, your Son, Jesus Christ. We praised him in worship a few minutes ago, and it's now in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to think about where we are in Scripture. For me, this has been a while since I've talked about Joshua. We are in the book of Joshua. It's been a book about God fulfilling his promises to the Israelites. He's giving them a land of their own. They spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt before God used a man named Moses to lead them to freedom. And then God commissioned Moses' successor, a man named Joshua, that he could use to guide his people into the promised land. The Lord had to hold back the flooded waters of the Jordan River so they could enter the land. He gave them victories over the cities of Jericho and Ai. The last time we were in Joshua a few weeks ago, we talked about how God used giant hailstones to defeat an army of five kings. 
And the end of chapter 10 tells us that the Israelites have now conquered the central and the southern regions of the promised land. It's now time for God's people to move north and to move forward to finish the conquest. And so that brings us to our passage and to the story of God's victory in the last battle, God's victory in the last battle of the war. Chapter 11 tells us about a man named Jabin, who's king of the city of Hatzor, and he heard about the Israelites' victories in the central and southern regions of Canaan. So Jabin summons all of the Canaanites around him. He asks them to join him in a great northern coalition so they can beat those Israelites once and for all. He could do this because Hatzor was a very important city. We read about that later. It was probably about 8 to 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And it's not surprising that this is the city that leads these kings. These Canaanite warriors, they assemble. That word is so good in my translation, a great horde. It's a huge army that comes together. We're told that their number was like the sand of the seashore. There were so many of them, they couldn't be counted. Now, that's an exaggeration. Of course, they could have counted each one, but it was a huge army, too big to count for this passage. We're also told that they had many horses and chariots. And that's important because this is probably the first time the Israelites had to face chariots in battle. When they were fighting other places in Canaan, they were kind of in a hill country. It's difficult to use a chariot when there's a lot of hills. But as Israel goes north, it starts to flatten out. And so the kings up there had chariots. Now, to us, when I think that's just a cart that some horses are pulling, but in the ancient world, a chariot was a powerful and a deadly weapon of war. They just started to make their way into the land of Canaan and be used by the people there. Because charging horses pulling these carts could easily push through infantry lines. In this picture, it shows chariots from Persia, so not quite the same, but if you can see, they attach swords or scythes on the side of the wheels that they could ride through and mow down the enemy. And so this massive army has these chariots, these devastating weapons, and they assemble together at this place called Merom to prepare to attack Israel. Now, a normal army, seeing all these chariots and these huge numbers, well, they would start praying for terms of surrender. But Joshua and the Israelites, they must have remembered God's promise to their ancestor Abraham. Because God told Abraham, not that the enemy army would be as the sand of the seashore, but I will surely bless you, make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. Someday, the people of Israel would be as numerous as their enemies. And so they knew that they did not need to be afraid of them now. And God himself tells them that in verse 6. He tells them, do not be afraid of them, because tomorrow, at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. God's kind of saying that he is the one who's actually going to be doing the fighting in this last battle. Seems to be like God's saying, I will take care of the soldiers. All you need to worry about is hamstringing or crippling the horses and burning the chariots. I'll take care of the fighting. This is kind of similar to what we read about the last time we were in Joshua. In 10.8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And so once again, God is promising his presence 
with his people. He will go with them. He will fight their battles. This is what he had promised to do back in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, God said, When you go out to war against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, Hey, that, that sounds a little familiar from what's happening today. Well, what does God say? You shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, God promised a victory. And so the Israelites fought. That's how God operates. He gives us promises and he expects his people to act in obedience. And so as we read, we see that's exactly what Joshua and the Israelites do. And just like their battles in the south of Canaan, God's people launch a surprise attack on their enemies. Verse 7 says, Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them at the waters of Merom. So instead of sitting back waiting for this massive army to come to him, Joshua takes the initiative. He attacks them at this place by waters. Well, if it's by water, you can't really use a chariot very well. So he's attacking them where they're not able to use those weapons in their attack. And so this northern coalition, it falls apart. The Israelites give chase. They pursue them in two groups. One goes to the west, one goes to the east. But the end of verse 8, I put it up here on the screen, it explains what happened really well. It says, and they, meaning the Israelites, struck them, the Canaanites, and they did that until he until God left none remaining. It's a wonderful text illustrating that God's people fought, but he was the one who got the glory. Verse 9 also talks about that they hamstring the horses. That's something you do the horse, cripple its legs. It doesn't kill the horse, but it means it can't be used for pulling anything. It can't be used for war. And then they burn all the chariots. So they're not just killing the horses for no reason, they're making them useless for war, but that they can live out their lives in peace. So after this battle, Joshua goes to Hatzor and he kills its king, devotes the city to destruction. Again, it was the leading city of this enemy army, so it receives the most severe judgment, and it's completely, totally, and utterly destroyed. Archaeologists today believe that they know where the city of Hatzor is, and It was destroyed many times in history, but a couple of those destructions look like they fit this time period. It looks like around this time it was burned by fire, which is exactly what the scripture tells us. But remember, Joshua and the Israelites, they only ended up burning three cities. They burned Jericho, Ai, and Hatzor. So they didn't normally go around burning cities. In every other place, they just drove the Canaanites out. And the reason they didn't burn most cities is to fulfill God's promise from Deuteronomy 6. Because when the Lord brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He's going to give you a land with great and good cities that you did not build. He'll give you a land with houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. So the Israelites moved into the cities and the homes that the Canaanites abandoned. It was God's blessing for his people. Now the rest of this passage that we read tells us that the Israelites destroyed the Canaanites just like God commanded. It emphasizes that multiple times, just like God commanded. 
Joshua had been told to be faithful to God's word back in chapter 1. And here, we see that he obeyed. In Joshua 1, 7, God says to the new leader, only be strong and very courageous. And he tells them, be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And Joshua obeyed Moses' commands. So this chapter is making it clear that the Israelites did not deserve to win this battle. They were outnumbered. They were outmatched. But God gave their enemies into their hands. And so the only reason Joshua was able to move forward and conquer the promised land was because of God's grace. Now, the destruction in these verses is very brutal. Remember, verse 14, a couple other places said, they did not leave any who breathed. Now, we talked about this type of death and destruction in the book of Joshua. It was probably about a a month or two. So I'm not going to go back and repeat myself today. I'd encourage you to look at that message. I think it was, why is there so much killing in the Bible, if you don't remember? But let's just remind ourselves, the Canaanites had hundreds of years to turn from their sin, and they knew it. They had also known for over 40 years that the Israelites were on their way to the promised land. And we're told repeatedly that they heard about what was happening. They heard that God had uh, stopped the water of the Jordan so they could cross. They heard about the walls of Jericho falling down. They heard about hailstones coming down on their enemies. They could have left Canaan. There's also an option like Rahab. They could have joined the Israelites. But the people we read about did not do that. They stayed, they fought, and they died. They had no excuse. On the other side, for the Israelites, this is a battle is an amazing victory for them. Because once again, they were outnumbered. And this time, the enemy had better weapons. But God just used it as an opportunity to show his power. He challenged his people to turn away from their fear of chariots toward trust in him. And that reminds me of the verse that we all read together, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. That's what the Canaanites did. But we, God's people, we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. God's people did this in our passage. And so God gave them a great victory. This was very significant in that day. In the ancient world, horses were considered gifts of war from the gods. But the true God wanted his people to trust him more than the gifts he gave. And so the Israelites here, they heard about this army, they heard about all these horses, they heard about the chariots, and they said, never tell me the odds. God is on our side. And they marched into battle. That is incredible faith. But I suppose they did serve an even more incredible God. And you know, I need that same type of trust and faith in my life. I can be afraid of what is in front of me that I can see, or I can trust the one who promised to never leave me nor forsake me. I'll admit, over the past week, there's been several times I've been tempted to doubt God's goodness in my life. Struggles and stress have tried to pry my gaze away from him, and I've had to actively remind myself to trust God. It's a choice that I have to make when I feel like doubting. I've had to say, no, no, I will not doubt 
I will trust God. God brought the Israelites victory. He brought them victory over an imposing wall, over greater numbers before. So here in the last battle, they trusted him to give them the victory over chariots. And in the same way I know, God has been so faithful to me in my past. And so I can know that he will be faithful to me in the future, in what comes next. In the moment, things might be hard. In the moment, things may be confusing. But I can trust in God's faithfulness. And my friends, you can do the same. I don't know what you're going through. I don't. I don't know every single person what's going on in your life. But if you are a brother or sister in Christ, then you have seen God be faithful to you in the past. And if you've seen his faithfulness in the past, you do not need to let fear or doubt keep you from trusting him now. God gave the Israelites victory in their last battle. Call out to him and he will give you victory too. It will come in his timing and it will come in his way. Now, the second half of chapter 11 describes God's sovereign victory, that God's in control of this victory. The second half, kind of verses 16 through 23. What's kind of interesting is we think of Joshua as this book of war, of he's, uh, the people are coming in, they're taking the promised land. But here we are, we're in chapter 11 of 24, and the world war is already over. The rest of the book is an opportunity for the Israelites to praise God. God was in control of the Israelites' victory in this war. And so this passage at the end of chapter 11, it's kind of a war wrap-up. Think for your military, an after-action report. It's a summary of all that God did for Israel in this war. Most importantly, we see that God gave his people the promised land. Verse 16 says, Joshua took all that land. In verse 23, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. So in this war, God did not stand on the sidelines and coach the Israelites to victory. No, that's not the image at all. God gave them the victory. He fought for them. In these verses, especially verses 16 and 17, it gives us the borders of the land that God gave to his people. It talks about how they controlled the hill country of Judah. They controlled the Negev. That's the area to the south and west of the Dead Sea. It tells us they controlled southern Canaan. That's the land of Goshen. They controlled the low land west of that hill country. They controlled the Arabah. That's the Jordan River Valley along the river. They controlled the northern lowland. That's the hill country of Israel. And this lowland slopes down to the coastal plain. We also read about how their boundary went from Mount Halleck in the south all the way up to Mount Hermon in the north. All the kings in that territory, their armies were defeated by the Israelites and by their God. Now, if we read this whole book, and I mentioned we're already in chapter 11, we might think, oh, this was a really quick victory. They just went through here. That's why verse 18 is there. It tells us Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There's only a handful of battles described, but the war was a long war. Only one group of Canaanites made peace with them, and they had to fight everyone else. It was a war of at least five years and more likely seven years long. But what's the bottom line? What is the end result of this war? Again, verse 23 tells us Joshua took the whole land. 
God gave the entire thing to his people. God fulfilled all of his promises to his people. The next two messages I give are going to be about the kind of the end of that last verse. Verse 23 says, Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. The next few chapters, I think it's like 13 through 19, are all about God giving his people the land. Joshua gave the land. He did exactly what God said. He obeyed every one of his commands and his instructions. Again, that's repeated throughout here. It says, just as the Lord commanded Moses. That's what Joshua did. And finally, that wonderful last sentence, last phrase at the end of verse 23, finally, the land was able to have rest from war. God's promise from Deuteronomy 12 had been fulfilled. He said, when you go over the Jordan and live in the land, your Lord God is giving you to inherit. When he gives you rest from all your enemies so that you live in safety. God gave his people true rest. They did not need to wander anymore. They did not need to fight anymore. They entered the settled peace that God had for them. And so today we can trust God to do the same for us. When we are wearied, when we're burdened by the struggles of life, we can remember that he will give us rest. In Matthew eleven twenty eight and 30, Jesus says that. He says, come to me, all you who are labor, who labor, who are heavy burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you do not know Jesus, he is the only true source of rest that you can find. And if you do know him, friend, you don't have to depend on yourself. You can rest. You can trust in him. Give your worries to him. Trust that he is in control. Before I move on, there's a couple of verses in this passage that really bring out this concept of trusting in the sovereign God. And there's like two of them I want to highlight. One note I think is really interesting, but we may have just read over it briefly without thinking about it. In verses 21 and 22, they talk about Joshua cutting off somebody or something called the Anakim from the land, from the people of Israel. There's two verses talking about this Anakim. What is that about, Pastor? Why is that significant? Well, the Anakim were a people group that were known for their height. They were known to be very tall. The famous giant Goliath may have been descended from them. And so when the Israelites first approached the promised land, they were getting close. They just left Egypt. They sent 12 spies into the land to search it out and see whether they should invade or not. Two of those spies were men named Joshua and Caleb, the same Joshua who we read about in this book. And they said, yes, we should move forward. We should take this promised land. But 10 of the spies said no. And this is why. They brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out. They said, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. The people we saw are of a great height. We saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, these are the Anakim who come from the Nephilim. We saw these Anakim, these giants. We seemed ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. 
the Israelites were afraid. They believed this report from these 10 spies, and they refused to obey God and go into the promised land. And as a result of that sin, they had to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And so what's funny about this is here in this passage, in two short little verses, the defeat of these super scary people is described. It's almost like the author has forgot to mention them. It's like an afterthought. He's telling the story going, and so the war ended. Oh yeah, that's right. You remember those people we were afraid of, those giants? Uh, God beat them too. These giants posed no threat to the one true God. And that really struck me because I thought, you know, sometimes I'm afraid of something for no reason or, or for no good reason. And because I'm afraid, that can paralyze me. It can keep me from moving forward into what I should do next. The Israelites suffered for 40 years. They could not move forward because they were afraid of these Anakim, these giants. But they did not need to be afraid. When the time finally came to fight them, they were defeated quickly. We're not even told any of the details of those battles. So friends, God is bigger than your fears. That thing that you're afraid of, God is in control of that. And I know it might seem really scary right now, but you probably know that someday, maybe a year, maybe two, maybe ten from now, you'll look back and go, why on earth was I afraid of that? Let the sovereign God take the place of your fears. Trust in him and move forward into what he has for you next. That's a lesson that each of us needs to learn. And I think that's a truth that we as a church should embrace. The sovereign God is so much bigger than our fears. Now, before I move on into chapter 12, there's one other verse that may have struck you as I was reading through. It's kind of an elephant in the room. That verse 20 of chapter 11 is a very powerful and challenging verse. It tells us the reason the Israelites had to fight all these Canaanites, the reason they had to fight everyone except those people in Gibeon, is because the Lord hardened their hearts. And he caused them to come out and fight against his people. This verse is telling us that God controlled the actions of the Canaanites and made them fight the Israelites so that they would be destroyed. And if you know the Bible, you know this is not the only place that we find verses like this. Verse 20 is very similar to what God did to Pharaoh when God's people were still in slavery in Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God confirmed, he solidified in Pharaoh and in the Canaanites' heart their sinful desire to rebel against him. So look what's happening here. God is not making Pharaoh and he's not making the Canaanites do something they don't want to do. He's simply hardening them to any possibility of change. And that led to their destruction. You know, God did the same thing to the Egyptians at the Red Sea. He's part of the sea as people are walking through, and God says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go into the sea after them. And then when I bring the waters down, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. 
Now, a sensible person, someone thinking clearly in that Egyptian army, may have said, you know, guys, maybe we shouldn't drive chariots into the middle of the ocean. Maybe that's not the smartest thing. A Canaanite, thinking clearly, might have said, you know, there's some God that seems to be helping this army, these people. Maybe we shouldn't go out and fight them. But a hardened heart refuses to see sense, refuses to grasp reason. And so that is why sin is so dangerous, because it hardens our hearts. It makes us not understand what would make sense if we took time to think about it. People can make extremely foolish decisions to sin when their hearts are hardened. This verse tells us it was God's choice to harden the hearts of the Canaanites. It was part of his plan of judgment against them. Their day of grace had passed. Again, remember, God had given them years of grace. He provided countless chances for them to turn from their sin, and they refused every opportunity. So at this time, in this moment, God chose to bless the Israelites and judge the Canaanites. And we might say, that that seems like God is being unfair. But imagine the alternative. Because if God is not sovereign, if he's not in control, then how can we trust him? If he's not in control of all things, we would have no guarantee that our future would be secure. A pastor whose commentary I'm using with this named Rhett Dodson, he addresses the controversy this way. He says, we spend far too much time debating the sovereignty of God when it's not a debatable point. God is sovereign. So given the truth that God is in absolute control, what we need to do is to ask the Lord what he wants us to do. Instead of arguing, we should pray, what is my responsibility, Lord? What is the wisest course for me to take? Give me wisdom that I may do what is right. And I think that's a very wise response. We should spend less time debating God's sovereignty, whether he's in control, and more time living in light of it. We should rejoice that God is always in control, because we can seek his wisdom for every decision that we make. And we should remember that if we have a relationship with God, it's only because of his gracious work on our behalf. We have nothing to be proud of. We should be eternally grateful for his salvation. Brothers and sisters, the sovereign God, this one we're reading about, he is with us today. He is in control of all things. That's not something to be afraid of. It's something that should lead us to rejoice. Well, finally, let's talk about chapter 12, which shows us God's victory over other kings. God's victory over other kings. I'm not reading it today because if you look at it, uh, it's mostly a list of a whole bunch of kings. But this list of defeated kings reminds us that there is only one true king. If you notice, the worship team sang a lot of songs of praise to this one king this morning. In this chapter, we read about 33 kings who were all pretenders to the throne because God alone is the one true king and his son, Jesus Christ, is the king who defeats all other kings. When God brought his people into the land, he wanted to be the only king that they served and so he destroyed all his rivals. Now, this chapter is split into two parts. In the first half, it's a reminder about the two kings the Israelites defeated over on the east side of the Jordan River. Under Moses' leadership, God's people won victories against a king named Sihon, king of the Amorites, and against Og, king of Bashan. 
Both kings and their kingdoms were completely defeated. They were conquered and destroyed. The second half of the chapter then is a list of 31 kings that Joshua defeated on the west side of the Jordan River and the kingdoms that God's people conquered. The list starts with Jericho and Ai, the first two, and then it roughly goes from the south to the north of Israel. So two kings under Moses, plus 31 by Joshua, gives us a grand total of 33 kings who could not stand before the army of the living God. And that reminds us of Moses' promise that he made about God in Deuteronomy 7.24. Moses said, He, God, will give their kings into your hand. You shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. Our text today, this chapter 12, is this promise fulfilled. Now, I saw this in more than one place. A couple commentators thinking about this passage, it reminded them of a poem. It's an older poem, I think about 200 years old, from a man named Percy Shelley. The poem has a funny name. It's called Ozymandias. And in this poem, the author describes a statue, but it's just two legs sticking into a pedestal in the middle of the desert. Two two stone legs attached to a pedestal, and next to them lies the statue's face, and it's half sunken into the sand. The last few lines of the poem, I think, are really brilliant. So it says, on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. This king built a monument to his own greatness, but now nothing remains except a broken statue. And all this broken statue looks over is a kingdom of sand. And the same is true for the 33 kings in this passage. At one time, each of them probably thought they were a great man. I'm a king. I rule over this area. But now nothing remains of their kingdoms. They fell before the Lord, the true king of kings. And so, friends, that begs the question, is God your king? Do you love and serve the one true God, or does your heart belong to someone or something else? God will have no rivals for his throne. He alone deserves to be worshipped. If you serve anyone, if you serve anything else, you will end up like Ozymandias and the Canaanites, alone and forgotten. Judgment came upon the people of Canaan and their leaders. Their nations refused to turn to God when given the chance. Those who resisted God all perished. There were no survivors. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm telling you the truth. God's judgment will come for you too. You cannot avoid it forever. But, but if you have a relationship with the one true king, the king who defeats all these other kings, then you will discover heights of love, joy, and peace that you could not have imagined. You will find the true source of contentment, satisfaction, and rest. And then when your life is over, you will live forever with your king. Revelation 17, 14 looks forward to the fate of those who do and do not know Jesus Christ, the Lamb, the Savior. It says they will make war 
on the lamb, those who do not know him. And what's going to happen? The lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. God used his chosen and faithful servants, Moses and Joshua, to defeat the Canaanite kings and to make their little kingdoms part of his true kingdom. And someday all of our world we see around us will be a part of that kingdom. But the question is, will you? If you do not know him, I'd ask you, please talk to someone, me or someone else, who can tell you about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you do know him, remember that this sovereign God gives you victory. You can trust in him and you can worship him now because he alone is worthy.